Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Kudzuvan for February 4th, 2024. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, excited about tonight's show. We've got us another uh, great guest, a first-time guest. Uh, Benjamin Harold, he has written a new book, uh, Disillusioned, uh, looking at five different suburbs around the country and how uh, suburbia and race intersect, at least in uh, you know in current times, if you will. Um, we'll talk to him about his previous experience, but he's a, an education reporter for Education Week, which is the leading um, periodical on education issues in America. Um, so if you're not familiar with it, like I am a school teacher, I'm telling you, it's a high-quality source of educational news. So we'll be talking to Mr. Harold here in about 20 minutes, but until then, um, we are one week out from the Super Bowl. And no, this is not a sports podcast, but we've got to talk about the intersection of politics and sports in the way of the right-wing meltdown that started either Sunday night or really, it, I think it kicked up in earnest on Monday morning when the Kansas City Chiefs and the um, San Francisco 49ers both punched their tickets to the latest Super Bowl, which will be played next Sunday. And we're talking about the red state, Kansas City Chiefs, and liberal blue city San Francisco 49ers. So, Catherine, if I said that the right wing is upset. Don't you think that they'd be upset that the left-wing San Francisco 49ers are in the Super Bowl? (laughs) I guess so. You know me. I don't know nothing about no sports ball. Well, that is not the case. They are upset because, in their words, the NFL has fixed this Super Bowl to let the Kansas City Chiefs be in it. And they believe that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to win Missouri's team, maybe the most right-wing trending state in America over the past, say, decade. Um, They're going to help Kansas City win uh, to help Taylor Swift because then Taylor Swift's going to help Joe Biden. Now, Tim, you follow football a little more closely like I do than Catherine does. Uh, Tell us your take on this nonsense. Well, first of all, it's the MAGA's worst nightmare. You, you you laid it out pretty much about Kansas City and Taylor Swift and the connection there. On the other side, we have San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi's team, Colin Kaepernick's team. Oh, no, not the team that took a knee, bunch of liberal commies, you know, uh, and, and so what do you do when you're on the right and you're faced with this? Well, 
you push baseless cons- conspiracy theories, uh, and and you mentioned the secret plan to get Biden elected. Uh, uh, the Vivek Ramaswamy said the NFL is rigging games for Kansas City, um, and 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 Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey are gonna come out at halftime of the Super Bowl, stop the halftime show and endorse Biden right there on the spot. <laughs> uh, then there's some, and, and this is Jesse Waters, a Fox News host, uh, said that Taylor Swift was something called a Pentagon psyop. Uh, she's a psychology op working for the Pentagon to help swing the election in Biden's favor, and that's all she's doing. Uh, what she's really doing, guys, is she like she's got a group called Vote.org, and online she actually signed up 35,000 voters in one day. That scares MAGA. Uh, and of course, you you know uh, the Trump allies. What are they calling it? Oh yeah, they're pledging a holy war against Swift if she endorses Biden and she's being warned by like uh, Jeanine Pirro or Jean Pirro, whatever her name is to, to stay out of, of politics uh, that celebrity shouldn't be there. Somebody tell Trump that, would you? <laughs> it is just so bizarre. I mean, I think we had, I mean, obviously to me that, that, that whole connection of Kansas city, being, you know, Blue America's team and, and San Francisco, you forgot Gavin Newsom, who was on the sideline before the game uh, between San Francisco and Detroit, uh, being Red State America's team. But they were all like, we need, we're all going to be 49ers fans for the week. And I just thought that's probably the first time some of those characters have rooted for anything in San Francisco. But, I mean, this is how just farcical this plot is. Okay, one reason the Kansas City Chiefs are good is they've got Andy Reid as a coach. The Philadelphia Eagles fired him well over a decade ago. So was Vice President Biden in on this long con where they would, you know, get the Eagles to fire him? Then the next big reason the Chiefs are so good is because they – um, picked a guy that really didn't have a long college track record, Patrick Mahomes, with the 10th pick in the draft. So they got nine other teams to pass on this guy as a part of this secret plot to um, elect Joe Biden in 2024, re-elect him. So these two big pieces of this plan are just bizarro. Because obviously there are other good players on that team, including Chris Jones, who's an excellent defensive player, including Travis Kelsey, uh, you know, Taylor Swift's boyfriend. But the two big pieces are the quarterback and the coach. Um, so this is how crazy this is. And, and Catherine, another thing people are saying is, Kath, uh, is that uh, Taylor Swift is wanting football because they keep cutting away and showing her um, I don't know if you've seen even online, so I know you're watching the games, clips of, you know, her in the box or whatever. Yeah, you know, occasionally. I, I just I, – I have to go back to something that Tim said because it sounds so ridiculous. 
They think she's a CIA operative. When is that? Like between flying around the world with all her concerts and then popping in at a football game and registering people to vote, which, by the way, is not partisan. Like when you register people to vote, they can vote however they want, you know. Um, I just, the whole thing is so, uh, I, I just am amazed at the people who spend so much time on something like this, instead of like registering their own voters or doing something to actually help a candidate, instead they're bashing, you know, a hardworking uh, performer, a hardworking artist. The whole thing is crazy. But anyway, back to her being on the Jumbotron. Uh, Yeah, but anytime you watch any kind of um, entertainment event, whether it's uh, sports ball or um, award show, they always show celebrities in the audience. That's the whole, one of the things that people look for is who's here, you know, who, I mean, how many times have we seen Spike Lee on the side of the Knicks uh, um, basketball games? That's like part of the deal. Yeah. And some of them are super fans and different things like that. Like Jack Nicholson was Um, Prince famously wrote a song for the Minnesota Vikings because he was a, you know, just a big super fan being from Minneapolis. Um, but, but you know, I think I, I saw the stat. They showed her for all of 44 seconds. And actually I saw that people were wondering tonight at the Grammys, would Travis Kelsey be at the Grammys? I, I'm like, God, he is ruining the Grammys for everyone, showing him in the audience or on the red carpet or whatever. But actually he had to practice yesterday, and the team had to travel as a team today to the Super Bowl. So he was, not, he was very regretful that he couldn't actually go, but then – uh, would that be part of the big plot, one way or the other, him going or not going to the Grammys? Um, just such a lot of nonsense well, um, in all this, Tim. Well, yeah, I'll try to drift back to the real world here for a moment because <laughs> where, where MAGA is is not in the real world. Uh, it, it would seem that going after Taylor Swift would not be – a good idea because it might hurt Republicans with young voters and they don't need any more pain inflicted on them with young voters. That's um, so true, Tim. Right, right now, right now, 58% of female voters support Biden. Well, a big majority of SWIFT fans are female. There's a poll out of Harvard University that said that uh, 19% of 18 to 29-year-olds, young voters, said they'll be more likely to vote if they received either a robocall or text from Taylor Swift encouraging them to vote. And in Newsweek, 18% of the same age group would be uh, likely to vote for a Swift-endorsed candidate. Knowing those things, why would you... uh, why would you do that? You, you know MAGA might be making too big of a deal out of this, obviously. Yeah, if they hadn't it. gone, If they hadn't gone after her at all, hadn't said, never said a word, 
wouldn't she be just another celebrity weighing in on politics? Yeah, and I think she endorsed Joe Biden last time. Uh, a big endorsement he got was from The Rock um, last time, and I don't see them going after The Rock in any kind of way. I'm sure some of the hardcores are. Um, some people just – I mean, I, I don't fully get it where if I want to watch a movie, I want to listen to some music, I want to read a book, and that creator doesn't agree with my political views, I can separate politics from art and enjoy one without having to agree with them on the other. Um, well, and I don't understand that anyway. The other thing is going after the NFL. Now, that blew up in their faces with Colin Kaepernick, you know, when they was going to boycott and this and that and the other. Didn't exactly work out. I heard Bill Maher say this Friday night. 93 of the most 100 watched things in the past year uh, – on television were NFL NFL games and stuff like that. 93 of the top 100 most watched things. And so they're going after the most watched, not only sporting event in America, but basically the most popular thing on television, according to the American people that the American people like. They're going and after the most, that. And the most popular uh, pop star. Like by far, by far yeah. the most popular pop star, and why? I I don't, I don't see an upside. David they can't Bellis, help themselves. Is there an upside? No. <laughs> yeah, I, they just I don't can't help themselves. At all. Yeah, I, it, this is uh, the part that becomes nonsensical. Is how do they continue to not completely implode as a party? Which they definitely have not completely imploded as a party with all of this peripheral nonsense. And somebody said, you know, after the week that the economy's had with the news, um, you know, what did, what can they talk about? They had to resort to this, which is just crazy. I just kind of wish that somehow during the week it would come out that Brock Purdy, the quarterback of the 49ers, is dating like Billie Eilish or um, Lady that's the singer off of Mean Girls, you know, because he's young. He's in his early 20s. Um, and then either way, these these clowns are screwed because, uh, you know, the NFL has it either way <laughs> with the young star and the um, singer or whatever. It's just crazy nonsense. Um, but let's talk about some real politics um, that we actually vote counting. Now, we had the New Hampshire Democratic primary, and Joe Biden didn't officially participate, but he still took the other two to the woodshed. Well, I kind of wondered why they didn't drop out. And now we actually had a primary in South Carolina where Joe Biden definitely participated against um, Congressman Dean Phillips and second-time candidate Marianne Williamson. Neither Marianne Williamson or Dean Phillips were able to get 2%. Joe Biden got about 96% of the vote in South Carolina. I think this is the largest, um, you know, win because usually they cancel this if it's an incumbent president, and you begin to wonder why they didn't. Uh, so we don't have 2012 and, two, and 1996 to really look at. But um, I guess the last time it happened on either side was George H.W. Bush, and Pat Buchanan fared much better 
than these two folks combined. And this was just in a complete annihilation. And at this point, I just can't see why the two of them don't drop out. Uh, I mean, Dean Phillips has pretty much thrown away a congressional career. Um, Catherine, what was your thoughts on the, you know, just complete and thorough victory by President Biden? Well, I think it's it, it, it's good. It's, it gives them, you know, momentum and uh, something to talk about. I don't think, I mean, I don't think the other two are going to drop out. Maybe that may, maybe Phillips will, but. I don't. I think Marianne Williamson has a message that she wants to talk about, and she's going to stay in there as long as she can afford to. Yeah, and that's what I said um, last week too. That's what I believe. Yeah, and once again, when you're getting, we're not getting two percent of the vote. I'm not sure if anybody's hearing your message, whatever it may be. Um, I remember hearing a whole lot more of it in 2020 when they actually had, you know, debates and forums and stuff like this with um, a, a, such a dominant incumbent president within his party, um, there's not a lot of oh, yeah. room for your message. Um, Tim, your thoughts? I had a friend that's an uh, enthusiast uh, talking to him the other day. He said, you know, you guys have an advantage. Trump has an opponent in the primaries, and Biden don't even have any opponents. So that led me to believe that the average person doesn't even know who Williamson and Dean Phillips are, have never heard of them, and don't know they're running for president. Uh, just as many probably know of that cast of characters we talked about, like the fellow that time travels and, uh, you know, <laughs> Vermin Supreme up there in New Hampshire and, and, and some of that crowd. Uh, I... I I, I'm perplexed at Dean Phillips that, that a man would throw away a seat in Congress to go out and do something like this. And it'll always be remembered, and, and I don't see how he's anything but totally finished in politics. Yeah, I don't think he's actually said he's running again. He said he's not going to run again for his seat. And they recruited a candidate that apparently is a top-shelf candidate who was actually, I think, he yeah. run against him. Um, yeah. And so I guess yeah. the bigger narrative is not so much that there's no there there with the Williamson and, and um, Phillips candidacies. It's, you know, we keep seeing these polls, oh, should somebody else run? Would you like to see somebody else run against President Biden? And you'll see, you know, these really substantial numbers. But when it comes time to count the votes, He's getting these massive numbers. Either it's on the ballot and people vote for him, or he's um, getting his name written in. And I, I read Rachel Bittenkoffer. She is really putting forth this theory that this is showing that these polls are kind of a paper tiger as far as people being in the Democratic electorate actually being disillusioned with President Biden. Your thoughts on that uh, theory, Catherine? I think that's an, a really good theory, and not surprising coming from Rachel. Um, I, I think I, I tend to agree with that, that there's there's no there there in the polls either. Yeah, um, and Tim, um, you know, kind of same thing there. We've got these uh, polls 
that are, you know, are not great for Joe Biden. But then when it comes time to count the votes, those results look nothing like these polls. No, and that includes a lot of these special elections that we've talked about over the last couple of years and and, and recent months. Uh, they keep happening, and they keep looking good for Democrats when everyone's talking doom and gloom. People need to get it in their heads. Biden will be the Democratic nominee, and Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. There's your choice, folks, and you know what that choice entails. And and what happens when either candidate wins? That's it. it it's not rocket science. That's it. That's where we are, yeah. and that's where we're going to be in November. Yes, and that's why it's pretty much time to move on. But we have a few more steps, I guess, to look at. But right now, we're excited to uh, have our guests join us tonight on the Kudzu Vine, author both in print journalism and now a uh, published book. Disillusion, the author Benjamin Harold. Welcome, Mr. Harold. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Well, um, excited to have you, and, and I am an educator. I, I, this is my 30th mm-hmm. year teaching. I retired from Georgia, mm-hmm. starting in Alabama this year for a few years. Um, and so I know education well, not from the same side that you do. I'm actually in the classroom. But tell us about mm-hmm. your background, including your work at Education Week. Yeah, so I've worked for the last 15 years as an education journalist, first covering the school district of Philadelphia uh, and then uh, covering K-12 schools nationally for Education Week. And that kind of really gave me a sense of both the the, the possibility and the problems in America's public schools. And so for a long time, I had really focused a lot of my coverage uh, around that kind of gap between what's possible and what we really want and what we actually get in the, you know, the the, the kind of lived experience that we have and the kind of the gaps in between that, really focusing on covering cities and, and rural areas. But it was several years ago that my hometown, uh, an aging suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, you know, really brought to my attention that the, the suburbs were really the, the, the heart of many of these conflicts in, in public education. Yes, and so I just happened to go to Pittsburgh about 10 months ago. Um, which part of the city did you grow up in, if you don't mind? Um, sure, I grew up in, a, in an eastern suburb of Pittsburgh called Penn Hills. So it's a it's a large area. It shares a, shares a border with the with the city. It's right to the city's east. And up until you know the 1940s, early 50s, it was really rolling farmland and old abandoned coal mines and limestone counts. And then, as with so much of the country, it was um, you know really that post-war suburban boom, um, and and really transformed into a community full of uh, single-family homes and subdivisions really quickly. Yes, yes. So I just was curious because. We had gone up there and really enjoyed the city. We didn't go much outside, I guess, what you would consider Mm -hmm. the city proper. Um, Well, um, we know that you picked these five different areas from across the country. And luckily, I actually have been to um, at least the uh, main place um, where each of them took place in. And actually, I'm from the South Atlanta suburbs and had a grandmother that actually grew up in um, Gwinnett County when it was farmland, pre-suburbs, mm-hmm. so we're talking way right. back. But how did you come about picking these five locations? 
So things really started when I returned to my hometown because, uh, you know, I had grown up there in the 70s and, and 80s and early 90s, and it was a place that worked really well for middle-class white families like mine, uh, particularly in the public schools. And so, you know, I got a, a great education and, you know, a lot of opportunities and benefits really kind of just, just handed to me and my family. And, and it led pretty directly to going on to college and graduate school and then a career in journalism. But it was about 20 years after I left, you start seeing all of these headlines come out of my suburban hometown. And somehow this community with, you know, 4,000 student school district had run up $172 million debt. And you were starting to see teachers being laid off and programs being cut, services being cut, uh, property taxes were going up and home values were stagnating. And so it seemed like this kind of cycle had gone through where like one generation got the benefits and the next generation had to pay for them. And there was like a demographic element to that as well, because by the time, you know, all of the bills started coming due, it was the, the public school families in Penn Hills were predominantly African-American. And so I got really interested in, okay, is this something that's just happening in my hometown or is this happening all over the country? And what I learned is that there's this kind of cycle that plays out over the course of several generations, and we see it in metropolitan areas all over the U.S. And so the five communities that I pick, you know, show this cycle in each of its different stages. From the very beginning of a new community, kind of ex-urban community, about 40 miles north of Dallas, still being built when I start reporting, um, on through to Gwinnett County in Atlanta, um, Evanston, Illinois, north of Chicago, my hometown outside of Pittsburgh, and then Compton, California, which is a place that we really don't even think of as a suburb anymore, but this whole cycle of development and decline and demographic change and disinvestment, all of that played out there in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And you can kind of see where each other community is in its life cycle based on comparing it to Compton. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm going to pass it on to Catherine and Tim for more questions, but I think unless they come up with something very similar, I've got kind of a wrap-up question towards the end, but I'm going to pass it to Catherine. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show tonight. This is, I read a little bit of the excerpts from the book, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. Um, well, like I'm so you, glad to be here. Thank you. I grew up in a, uh, well, I grew up in a small college town and, uh, the schools were outstanding and, um, you know, we lived in a little suburban area post-war, but very, very similar. Um, it wasn't mm-hmm. suburbia, really. It was a small town. But um, I just I, – you said that it was sort of a cycle. Do you think that this is like a, a naturally occurring cycle, or is there something – that we're doing wrong that we need to fix. I mean, obviously we need to fix something because uh, we're mm-hmm. leaving generations of, you know, school-age children, you know, uh, unprepared, I yeah. guess is the word. But, but what is the what, – what do you think the key elements are that cause this? That's a great question, and I think it's important, you know, part of what I do in the book is go back into the history of how each community was formed and really focusing uh, specifically on our post-war suburbs that grew up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And what we saw there was, was two things that are really important to, to understand what's happening now. So one, you know, many, many, many of these communities were really built on a foundation of intentional 
um, designed racial exclusion and economic exclusion. So they were really built for one particular type of family uh, at one particular stage of life, at one particular racial background and, and economic class. And those families got a lot of benefits um, because of the second thing that's really important to understand about those early days of our post-war suburban experiment is that much of it was built um, with big subsidies and taking on these kind of long-term obligations and debts and not really preparing to pay for them or renew or repair as we go on. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. So like a community like Penn Hills where I grew up, like it, again, changed from farmland to subdivisions, you know, almost overnight. And so that means you have all of these roads and sewers and sidewalks and public schools all built very quickly. And so, and often built with government aid, whether that's, you know, cheap loans or direct subsidies. And so what happens is, you know, that, those first few generations of families really benefit from all of those, uh, you know, all of that new infrastructure, all of the, the money that's kind of built without having a long-term plan for maintenance and renewal in mind. And then 30, 40, 50 years down the line, all of that new infrastructure gets old very quickly. And the bills start to come due. And what we've seen again and again is that the families who have means tend to leave a community right before the bills come due. And then the families who follow, expecting and hoping to get that same generous social contract, the same good schools, the same good infrastructure, all of a sudden find themselves on the hook to essentially pay for all of the benefits that somebody else really receives. And all too often, those families who follow, you know, into the third or fourth generation of a sub suburbs life cycle are often black or brown or poor or immigrant. And so those who kind of need and want that American dream the most end up kind of getting stiffed the hardest. And that's a cycle that we see over and over again. And it's baked into both the policies and the, the kind of economics and the mindset upon which suburbia was built. And I think that's part of what we're reckoning with now is just like we, we have really turned a blind eye to this for generations, and uh, we're reaching a point where we can no longer ignore it. Wow, that's, that's absolutely fascinating that we, it's mm. sort of like planned obsolescence, like we didn't right. not plan, unplanned obsolescence. I have a question. Right, and, that, you know, no, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I just wondered, I, I have um, a lot of opinions. I don't have children, so I, I feel free, free to have a lot of opinions. <laughs> but do you think, and this may be way off base and way crazy, but do you think that the emphasis on um, test scores and um, the sort of, I mean, from my perspective, this sort of change from uh, teaching to proving that we've taught has, um, has any impact on this? I think what we see in a lot of communities, you know, suburban communities, particularly ones that are you know, newer and more affluent, is that parents don't really want that. I mean, they certainly want their kids to get good test scores and they want them to get into good colleges and all that. But what they really want is this kind of personalized attention, the sense of, hey, if my child has special needs, I want to make sure they're getting addressed. If my child is gifted, I want to make sure they have chances to explore their curiosity and passion. And really, even in like a more general way of just, you know, being in a school and in a classroom where a child, your child's gifts are, are recognized and nurtured and cultivated. And so I tell a story in the book about my own experience with this that I think really reflects this. When I was in third grade and, uh, in suburban Pittsburgh, 
you know, I was the kind of kid who I would get bored and I would start drawing on things. I would draw on my desk and in my textbooks and all of those things. And so instead of punishing me, what my teacher did was brought in a typewriter from home. And she said, Ben, when you get bored or when you get distracted, you just go back and work on the typewriter instead of drawing on your desk. And you can do whatever you want. And so that was like this amazing gift for me. I actually started my own class newspaper. It was my first newspaper job. And you can kind of see how the kind of those kinds of gifts and that kind of grace led to, you know, much of, you know, kind of set the direction of my life in many ways. And I think what we see is that parents really fight hard to preserve that for their own children, um, particularly those early generations of more affluent and, uh, parents in a, in a suburban community. But as the demographics start to change, often what you see is the sense of like, oh, we have families who are coming in who have different needs and we don't really understand them. And so there's this restricting of the, you know, not just the curriculum, but the relationships. So it's focused more on how do we, you know, it's kind of seeing kids and families as a problem that has to be managed and fixed. And that feeds a lot of this disillusionment, particularly among suburban families of color that I write about in the book. Oh, that's, that's I guess, such a great story. And such a good example of, um, I, I mean, I went to a school, I, I didn't go to a public school for elementary school, but I went to a lab school. Um, but that was exactly the kind of thing you would expect from the school that mm-hmm. I went to. I was in school mm-hmm. in the 60s, so whatever. Um, well, this is very fascinating, and I'm looking forward to um, reading more about your work. It's really interesting and important, and I hope it gets the attention it deserves, because I feel like we're leaving these children behind and missing the gifts that they have to offer and it's it's kind of heartbreaking to me but i will pass it on to tim because i know he has some more questions thanks so much thank you good evening sir um i go to atlanta a good bit during football season to uh georgia tech to watch games the area i drive through is not recognizable from what I saw there 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you saw a very depressed area, uh, like the worst nightmare of of a big city, the, the worst place you could go to, a place you would drive through with your doors locked in the middle of the day. You wouldn't see people on the street. It was a high crime-ridden area, very depressed area. Drive through the same area now. You see trendy shops. You see people out walking their dogs. You see high-rise luxury condos. Um, And I I also couldn't help but notice that the crowd you saw 20 years ago was mostly people of color. Now you see mostly white people. Has white flight reversed itself are some people who left generations ago to go to the suburbs now coming back to the major cities yeah i think that's exactly right that's one of the forces that's really driving the diversification of suburbia and a lot of the the conflicts and tensions that i describe in the book and so you know what you see is that historically what we've kind of seen is this pattern of you know white families and particularly white families with means not wanting to live in the same communities as African-American families in particular and not wanting to send their kids to school with African-American children. And that really Mm -hmm. initially, that was a big, you know, a big motivating factor in the formation of these post-war suburban communities and why they were racially restricted from the start. 
And what we've seen is over generations, as suburbs have started to diversify and as the bills for all of those early subsidies start to come due, families that can start to leave. They still don't want to live uh, and share schools and share public resources and tax dollars with people who don't look like them. And so part of what we see is, you know, that, you know, we've seen this kind of like far ex-urban development with families moving 30, 40, 50 miles outside of a central city, and also the gentrification of center city areas with white and affluent and highly educated families moving back in. And so part of what, you know, I think is so important about that is to understand that the same way that white flight really decimated urban areas like that area around Georgia Tech where there was so much disinvestment that came with mm -hmm. that white flight and that so much mm -hmm. of kind of this like leaving people behind to deal with problems that they didn't even necessarily create, they inherit, and now it's theirs and they're overwhelmed by it. That's happening in suburbia now as well. And so we don't tend to think of suburbs as having those problems, but that's, a, you know, a big part of what's going on in a lot of places. And I think, you know, in your area, we've, you know, seen that, um, you know, historically like that, that trend and that pattern in DeKalb, and I think we start to see it creeping out further into places like Gwinnett and the, and the outlying counties as well. Mm -hmm. Are there still successful suburbs in this country, and what do they look like? I think part of the question, uh, you know, with that is what does success look like and success for whom? And so, you know, what we have historically thought of as success for a suburban community is, is it working now for us, for me, for my family? And there's certainly lots of suburban communities that work very well for the families who live there right now. I think the larger question, though, is what do – you know, what does it look like for a suburban community to be successful, to provide that kind of rich level of investment and intention and care to not just the families who are there for that first, second generation when everything's new and shiny and sparkling, but to sustain that kind of investment and care and repair and renewal across generations, across demographic changes, across like the aging of a community. And that's the part that I don't think we see a lot of great examples of. The, the suburbs that tend to, you know, maintain high quality of life across long periods of time tend to maintain their racial and economic exclusivity. And it's, it's that part that I think we still haven't, you know, cracked of like when the population of a community changes, how do we make sure the investment from the community into its people stays the same as well. Hmm. Well, if suburbs as we have known them do de uh, indeed unravel, for want of mm -hmm. a better word, I'll just use the word unravel, then what? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think you know, part of what I argue in the book is that we are really just at the beginning stage of this. And so uh -huh. the, the, the scary part of that is, like, we don't know exactly what would happen. The early indicators are that it's going to be, you know, pretty fraught. You know, we have seen a lot of uh, suburban school board meetings, for example, that used to be very sleepy, mundane, bureaucratic affairs, now are, you know, kind of all-out brawls over how we talk about race and how we teach history and whether we should promote diversity, equity, inclusion. You know, all of these fights are very concentrated in suburbia right now, and I think they're just early skirmishes in this kind of wider conflict. And so, you know, on one hand, it's a little bit scary because I think we could see a lot more, and I think we're likely to see a lot more of these kinds of tensions as demographic changes accelerate and as our ability to keep moving away from the problem like we've historically done, you know, we start to lose that. But there's yeah. also an opportunity there as well. And I think the opportunity is to say, hey, how do we kind of rethink 
what our mindset is about how we develop communities and kind of the, the approach and the philosophy behind them. And I think there is a real opportunity to say, hey, what we're going to have to do, like we're not going to have a choice, we have to figure out how we repair and renovate and renew these communities so they work for the families who live there now. Um, and if we can't do that, we're in big trouble. But I think there's an opportunity to really, you know, to, to really try new things. Yeah, and I, I'm sure you you uh, study at great length the present political and social environment in this country and, and know what where things stand now. As things stand now, do we have a chance to fix those things that you're talking about? Well, I think there's there's always a chance. And I think the thing that, that I came away with a tremendous amount of hope and inspiration from is if you go to any suburban community in the United States, you are going to find, um, you know, individual families, individual parents, and groups and collectives of parents who are working very hard around all of these issues that we're talking about. Like people care about their kids, about their futures, about their schools, about their communities. And that energy, you know, that gives us, you know, a lot of reason for hope. I think the challenge is two things. So one, the scale of the investment that we're going to need in order to repair, adapt, renovate, you know, renew a lot of these communities that are all going to start falling apart at once, as we've already seen happening with older inner ring suburbs, like there's this whole wave across the country of older inner ring suburbs that are really in hard times right now. And I think that's going to continue to creep out as outlying suburbs age as well. And so there's going to be, you know, a massive investment of resources and money that we're going to need to repair those. But we're also going to need, you know, this kind of change in mindset, this idea that we really have to stop thinking about just building, growing further out, growing further out, growing further out, and that's the way out of our problem to say, no, we have to stay, we have to improve the places that we already have. That's not, you know, a, a popular idea in, in much of American politics right now, but I think it's going to become increasingly necessary. Well, I thank you for that, sir, and with that, I'm going to throw it back to David. David? Yes, well, you kind of alluded to, to my kind of wrap-up question, but I'll still try to answer, ask it. Um, you know, you have these uh, folks initially when the suburbs were created, it was white flight from the cities. And Tim mentioned, you know, people returning to the cities. And sometimes that causes people to, you know, talk about gentrification. Uh, but to me that seems better because at least they're saying, hey, we're not – scared of what our maybe our grandparents were scared of and we're moving back in the city or people can move out to the exurbs and go further and further out kind of like your dallas situation because seemingly the the dallas exurbs are about to touch uh arkansas um up north of frisco from what i understand so um and, and i guess you could also stay what's going to be the roadmap to um you know, the, the mix of those three things, what do you see as the roadmap to where, you know, American families, and we're probably talking about millennials and Gen Z, what they decide to do? Yeah, and I think it's a great question, and I think part of what we're going to have to really wrestle with as a country is that there's, you know, again, this kind of deep-seated idea of, like, if you have the means, you can go somewhere else and start over. Like that's a very American idea. It goes back to the very beginning, you know, before America was America, this idea of like you go out on the frontier and you start over and you can escape history and, and build something new is very fundamental to who we are. But 
what we're seeing now in a lot of suburban communities is two things. One, the demographic changes are accelerating so quickly that our notions of what those communities are and who they're designed for and who belongs and who doesn't are being complicated really, really fast, and that's causing a lot of tension. Um, and so, you know, one just kind of data point to put it in perspective is that already in America's 25 largest metropolitan areas, the suburban public schools in those areas, white children are already a minority so these demographic changes are happening very fast. And the second thing is happening is that we are really running up against the limits of that kind of cycle of outward development. And that's because of the housing market is a mess and environmental and climate reasons, commute times, you know, you name it. There's a lot of factors contributing to that. And so what that means is a lot of families who historically would have been able to just flee demographic change, flee an aging community, are now being forced to stay, whether they want to or not. And they're kind of stuck. And that means we have to learn how to figure things out together. The early indicators of that are not so great. You know, we've seen like, a, you know, Gwinnett is a great example where you saw this real, you know, in the school board politics around 2020, for example, there was this real kind of generational and racial conflict of saying, hey, the population of this place has changed, but the leadership <laughs> has not yet changed. And that led to a lot of tensions and fights. And it's, you know, it's, you see it at the local level and at the national level. And I think we're likely to see those kinds of tensions and political fights continue to play out as we realize, like, hey, the demographics are changing so fast and there's no longer this kind of escape valve. We're forced to stay and deal with these forces that we've been, you know, running away from for a very long time. Yes. Uh, well, I just think it's fascinating how you used, um, you know, school systems throughout the country, um, and one of them being here in Georgia made uh, kind of brought it home to us, although – I, I don't know if you're familiar with what happened in Clayton County with losing accreditation and probably the cycle in which Gwinnett's spacing happened in like half the time. It was also very fascinating um, as a suburban area. Well, um, we want to thank you for coming on the show, but before you leave, tell our listeners several things. A, where they can buy this book. Um, B, uh, where they can read you and see if you want to share anything about social media. Uh, thanks so much. So the book is Disillusioned, Five Families and the Unraveling of America's Suburbs. It's available wherever books are sold, your local independent bookshop, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. Um, all of those are great places to find it. You can also find uh, my work, a little more about the book, and uh, opportunities to buy it wherever you like at BenjaminHerald.com. That's Benjamin, H-E-R-O-L-D.com. And I'm on um, X at, at Benjamin D. Harold. Yes. Well, we thank you so much for coming on. And if you're still covering all these educational issues, I could see us calling on you again to discuss some of those intersections of um, education and politics and, and social life. I'd be happy to come back. Just let me know. I'll be there. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Right. Thank Thanks you so for having much. me. Hope you guys have a, I hope you have a great night. You too. All right. Benjamin Harold, um, author of Disillusioned, Five Families and Suburbs, and then also um, Education Week Reporter, just a really interesting book. Uh, kind of reminded me of, of what I was able to read that excerpt and, and, and all. I can't wait to actually read the book in full. Uh, of the book about workers that um, Farrah Stockman wrote, um, that we had on several months ago. Same kind of story, stories, and it brought you into people's lives 
as a way of telling this mm-hmm. bigger story. So I really like that kind of, I guess, journalism, storytelling. Um, so I, I can't wait to read the book, and I'm sure a lot of other folks that have heard this will want to do the same. Um, well, let's kind of get back to some politics, and we've talked about South Carolina. Now, one thing I did want to ask about South Carolina, because, Tim, you know it, and I know you'll, you, you'll know it faster than I want, Catherine. You may know it, too. Why is the South Carolina Republican primary not the same day as the Democratic one? I wonder well, the same that's a thing. Good, yeah, that's a good question for which I don't have an answer, but I believe it might have been the Democratic primary that actually moved because you might remember in 2020 they all kind of went hand in hand. Iowa, uh, New Hampshire, they jumped, both jumped out to Nevada. And then they came to South Carolina. But you remember the Democrats changed their calendar so that South Carolina would be their first primary. So oh, I think I right. think the Republicans kind of kept the same schedule and the Democrats changed. That's because, as you know, the Republicans are going out to Nevada on Tuesday, and the Democrats went to South Carolina first and then Nevada instead of the other way. Yeah. Maybe, maybe after – the Trump era of politics and MAGA, we can sit down and make one calendar, even if we have to draft. You know, they flip a coin, DNC chair picks one, uh, Republican chair yeah, picks the next you know, one, the Dave, DNC chair picks Dave, the next two, David, until we have David, Yeah, well, <laughs> David, after the Trump era, we're going to have to sit down with like half the population and get more basic. We'll show them a map or a globe of the earth. We'll start there and say, okay, here's the earth, and here we are, you know, and, and then we'll we'll try to work our way up from there with those folks. So just – And, Tim, I vote that you can take your globe down to Kansas Taylor, and she can tell you that it's fake. Uh, that the earth uh, is fake. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get on to our, other, our last two topics, which are actually we have three listed. I don't think we get to all three, but we got plenty of time in this election cycle because they're all Senate races. Um, some of the more interesting ones, I think we're going to talk about the two that are seemingly going to be much more decided on the Democratic side of the aisle. And let's start with New Jersey. Um, a poll came out because we have seemingly three candidates, which one just kind of uh, blows my mind that he's thinking he can still stay in the Senate. But the three candidates are Congressman Andy Kim, um, First Lady of New Jersey, Tammy Murphy, and sitting U.S. Senator Bob Menendez, who um, in this poll was polled and, and did register a number that probably would make Dean Phillips and uh, Marianne Williamson jealous. It was like 9%. But nevertheless, uh, Andy Kim has a pretty solid lead on Tammy Murphy, but there's a ton of undecided voters. Tim, um, I think you're really looking at this race um, because you were one of the first ones that I guess as soon as it kind of opened up started talking about it. So what is your thoughts on this poll? Well, First of all, uh, uh, I did want to add one other candidate. There's a uh, union uh, rep up there, labor leader, by the name of uh, Patricia Corpus Medina. She's running now at 8% in the polls, right behind Bob Menendez. What you have here is 
Tammy Murphy, who has broad institutional support in the state because her husband's the governor, and and uh, she goes back a ways in politics in the state. And so a lot of the state's political people uh, in the legislature and the constitutional offices and stuff like that are supporting her. Andy Kim has a bunch of grassroots support at like the county party level and that sort of thing because he's been crisscrossing the state like mad. Uh, he's got a good reputation. He's very progressive. Uh, been on television a lot. Uh, and then you got Bob Menendez, who is basically being abandoned by the voters, <laughs> which, uh, you know, which he's earned. He's down to 9% right now. Andy Kim has a good, solid 12-point lead. He's sitting at 32. She's sitting at 20. Um, I, I, it, it really does look like... Uh, He's got a pretty solid lead built up. Uh, you did mention uh, about 30% undecideds. Um, she might could swing them, but you know it's it's a it's a two person race, and and that's where that's where it is. This was a fairly yeah. Dickinson poll, by the way. You mentioned. Yeah, and it was, uh, um, and that is a college in New Jersey. So they're in state for what that's worth, because there's a, a college well, good polls in our state they're that I never polls. think are good. <laughs> yeah, they're good polls. So, they are. Yeah, I'm ready to see Georgia Tech and Georgia State's polls of our state, because um, I'm not so impressed with UGA's offerings lately. Uh, let's get back to New Jersey. Uh, New Jersey's uh, poll and, and state Senate, or U.S. Senate race, Catherine, your thoughts on this really four-person race as far as that poll goes? Well, it sounds good to me. Um, I like Andy Kim. I mean, mm-hmm. Bob Menendez is old old news. Uh, Murphy, you know, it sounds to me like, I mean, I think I obviously I prefer Andy Kim, but I think either one would probably be satisfactory. So, you know, let the best one. Let the voters decide. Um, but I'm just glad that Menendez is out of it. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, somebody needs to tell him if if he's in it enough to where people feel they need to poll him. Um, and not only, he's not old news. I mean, if he was doing a good job and ethical, I don't. I wouldn't be pushing or playing. Yeah, that's true. somebody big. I mean, he, he's 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 uh, he's <laughs> yeah, waiting to get convicted. <laughs> Seemingly, he's a crook. Um, so that's the problem there. Um, but now, I want to note nine percent. Did I want? To, I'd love to see some cross tabs and understand who are the nine percent that are supporting him. And maybe it's just a cross section of folks, and it's not like any certain demographic. It's just this loose affiliation of folks. And then I guess we need a focus group of the people willing to hang on with Bob Menendez? Do they just love incumbency that much, Tim, that they're just like, hey, the incumbent? Well, I, they, they, I think it's a personal thing. Richard Nixon had those that stayed with him to the bitter end and after. Uh, it, you, you know, even even in the darkest, worst hour, worst hour of some politicians, uh they, I mean, for, for crying out loud, I, I'm not comparing these people to Hitler, but when Germany was falling to pieces, being bombed out of existence, 
a majority of the German people still wanted Adolf Hitler to remain uh, as the leader of Germany, even post-war. How anybody could do But that that is the depth that some people will go to with their support. I think this is just a personal thing. These people love Bob Menendez. Maybe he did something for them uh, at some point or something like that. And uh, there's always a few deniers, and 9% is not a lot of support for, a, you know, a multi-term incumbent senator. No, it's nothing but, to brag but I, about. I think there's also probably name recognition that, you know, yeah. if someone's on a, on the phone, you know, is like, oh, yeah, that sounds good, you know, doesn't, yeah. isn't maybe paying as close attention as we'd like them to. Yeah, yeah I would be happy for us, 0.9. Um, and then I'd still trust them at point nine people. Um, but, but you know, and, and I'm going to third what y'all said. I, I mean, I like Andy Kim best, too. I'm going to vote Georgia, so we won't have a Senate race this year. But um, if I were uh, voting up there at this point, um, I would be supporting Andy Kim. I think he really got everybody the evening of January 6th when yeah. I, I don't think most people knew about him and the Capitol was rioted. And after everything calms down, he's in the Capitol cleaning up. And that's just real servant leadership. And um, I think that's how he was introduced to the American public. And a lot of the American public uh, seemed to really take to that, including this, you know, plurality at this point of New Jersey voters. So we'll see how it develops um, because that a number of undecideds, it could sway. We don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but we have talked about this race before. The California Senate race, um, it kind of took a new turn. We have out a poll, and it shows that um, the leading Democrat, but when it's just Democrats, not by a lot, is Adam Schiff over Katie Porter. But when more and more people start to learn, Republican voters start to learn about former uh, Dodger and Padre baseball player Steve Garvey running, he starts to rise in the poll, and the latest poll that came out showed him uh, possibly getting that second spot in the jungle primary. And now, added to that, Adam Schiff has begun running commercials against Steve Garvey, seemingly, and Katie Porter's kind of charged this, to raise Steve Garvey's profile so Steve Garvey gets the second slot and Adam Schiff's calculation is California being so Democratic, the Democratic person in that two-person race with a Republican is a almost solid lock to win the um, Senate seat. Uh, Catherine, your thoughts on where this race stands and – the calculation of a Democrat somewhat helping a Republican um, for their own purposes. Yeah, you know, it might not be pretty, and it might not be, you know, uh, in the spirit of uh, party politics, but it's politics, and he's trying to win, and this is one of the ways that he's decided to do so these jungle primaries are really difficult and i'm sure he's just looking for any angle to get ahead and i'm a big fan of adam schiff so i i i'm not i I can't i'm not going to be too critical of him 
uh, and either one will be a great senator. So I, I'm fine with whatever happens, either Katie Porter or Adam Schiff. So. Yeah, I was I was wanting you to clarify because I thought I didn't know you were a big Steve Garvey guy, but no, I'm not a big <laughs> Steve Garvey fan. <laughs> yes, um, I didn't even Kim, know he you're... was. I didn't even know he was a sports ball person until you said that. Well, that's where he he, he had his fame, but now it is years ago. Like I think he retired before, say, Adele Murphy here in Atlanta. I mean, he is really a long time ago. Um, Tim, your thoughts on um, this dynamic in California? Yeah, uh, Steve Steve Garvey was a, a very fine baseball player. He was uh, one of, part of that great Dodger infield with him and Lopes and Russell and Say back in the 70s and 80s, and I can shut up about that now, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, <laughs> what, 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 the voters are going to have to vote four times this year, guys. We not only have the primary for the seat, but we got the special election, too, to serve out the remainder of uh, Senator Feinstein's term. So we're looking at the voters having to go to the polls four times and that dynamic, too. I think especially Schiff's thinking here is when that special election, it comes first, then you run the next time as the incumbent which really seals the deal. Nobody's going to get 50% of the vote, so it's going to be a top-two finish. Uh, I I think he's trying to do what Claire McCaskill, or a version of what she did, you might recall in Missouri a few years ago, when she basically helped the worst candidate possible on the Republican side win. She was supposed to lose that year, and as a result of that happening, she won the race because the voters just found him so unpalatable. Uh, Garvey won't be that, but, you know, California is a very democratic state. Uh, he would go in a top two uh, race with Garvey as a 20 to 30 point favorite. Uh, it would be a lot closer with uh, Katie Porter or even Barbara Lee because then you're talking about battling it out for the brunt of the Democratic vote. Uh, so I, I, I can see what he's doing. Uh, I'm not going to endorse it or anything, but I, I can see I, I can see what he's what he's doing and, and why he's doing it. And by the way, Garvey is running best in the poll of the special election. He's running better there than he's running in the poll for the full term, David, and I think I'll go out and let you uh, tell us why that is. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know why he's doing better in the special, although the last time the Republicans won a big race was Arnold Schwarzenegger in California uh, in a special election, so maybe that's their big move. Um, you know, and I, I do think money is playing a big part of this because that's where Adam Schiff has done so much better than uh, Kate yeah. Porter and Barbara Lee. He's outraised them, and then that gets yeah. into this whole thing where male candidates outrace female candidates, and um, it just gets into a real tricky thing. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, if, if I were voting in California, I'd support Katie Porter. Um, I really think she's a different kind of candidate, but – if she's if it comes down to money and then money allows Adam Schiff to do things like this, it's going to be what decides it. 
Um, and I know so we had Steve Singer on the show, I mean, almost a year ago, like when this whole thing got kind of started, he mentioned that because Adam Schiff went after Donald Trump years ago, that if it got down to the two of them, two Democrats, that some Republican voters would vote for, really not for Katie Porter, against Adam Schiff, even though they didn't think anything of her and her politics, just to hold it against him. So that may be another reason, um, if, if Steve is astute about his home state, that um, that's the reason Adam Schiff has no interest in facing her in a general, um, where Republican voters could be a big deciding factor among two Democrats. So we still have a little more time in this race, although I, I kind of see the concrete starting to dry on this one um, faster mm-hmm. than I thought I would have. Um, so it'll be interesting to, to see how it unfolds. Well, guys, next week's the Super Bowl, and um, I won't go into all my personal stuff, but we're not going to go live. We never go live, and it doesn't like we're going to have a show next week. Um, so, Tim, did you want to make a Super Bowl prediction? Uh, yeah, I think I, I'm going to stay with the Chiefs till they lose. They're defending Super Bowl champions, and they, they, they've got a great ball club, but I'd, I'd be fine with either team winning. Yes, and, and Catherine, I don't want to um, – uh, exclude oh, you want, in this, but well, I just want Taylor Swift to to win. <laughs> She'll be at the I want, her, I want her to be successful in her underground, uh, her uh, CIA uh, yeah, there conspiracy. We go. <laughs> at halftime, she breaks up with Travis Kelsey, announces her relationship with Forty Nineers tight end uh, George Kittle. All these Magus people's heads explode because they don't know what to think, who to cheer for. No, seriously, I think the Chiefs will win because they're a superior football team. I actually said the winner of the AFC when they had about three or four teams would beat the winner of the NFC just because I thought they're better at football. But regardless, it's a good story if the 49ers win with a quarterback who was taken last in the seventh mm-hmm. round just two that, years I've ago. Got so a, yeah, I've got another thing, I got another thing too. My boy Harris Butler plays with Kansas City, of course, and he's a tech man. And you know, I believe the the old gold. So, <laughs> yes. Well, uh, great to get back on the show with a, a, one of our author guests, and, and thanks again for Benjamin Harrell coming on the show. Until next time, it's been the Cudsy Vine. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.